Welcome to the 209th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Carrie Patel, author of the novels The Buried Life and Cities and Thrones. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Carrie Patel, author of the novels The Buried Life and Cities and Thrones. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks. Great. Well, can you read the first two or three pages of Cities and Thrones? A large cast iron pot sat atop the stove, and sweet, spicy aromas emanated from within. Jane was pleased to see their host appear at her side with three mugs, ladling the steaming liquid into each of them. She followed him back to the table, where Frederick had already perked up at the scent of a warm beverage. She sat next to him while the bearded man slid onto the bench across from them. Cider, he said, distributing the three sturdy but chipped earthenware mugs. He took a flask from his side and tipped a splash of amber liquid into his own beverage. He looked to Jane and Frederick, his eyebrows her head, but Frederick slid his mug closer, nodding eagerly. When the bearded man had doctored Frederick's drink, the three clinked their mugs together and sipped their cider. Jane was so lost to the sensation of the moment, the warming aches beneath her cold flesh, the sweetness of the apple and the spice of cinnamon and nutmeg, that she almost didn't hear from the bearded man, that she almost didn't hear the bearded man finally introducing himself. Salazar, he said, now that we're sharing a drink. Frederick hesitated, looking at Jane. They'd been careful to remain anonymous and to avoid giving out any more details about themselves than necessary, something their previous hosts had been perfectly content with. But this Salazar had already pieced together enough about them to know that they were at risk. Giving him a name couldn't make that much of a difference. And so they did. Salazar only nodded. We've seen a lot of your people on the move, he said. Traveling the railways, heading north toward Medina. We hear it's the same down towards South Haven, too. But these folks certainly haven't set foot on our hearths. And as for the men and women in the cargo section, taking our shipments and offloading supplies from Recoleta, well... We couldn't help but notice that a few of them are new to the job. And of the ones who will talk, we get some colorful stories about what's going on down in that city of yours. But they're different stories. And seeing as you seem to know something about events down yonder, I was hoping you could clear up a few points of confusion for me. Frederick wrapped his hands around his mug. Unfortunately, we've been out of the loop for a few weeks. Haven't we all, Salazar said. I'm not holding you to any special prescience. But among us, it's common for travelers to share the news on where they're coming from, especially when they're relying on hospitality. Jane remembered a story she'd been told weeks ago at a party to which she never should have been invited by people who were, likely as not, dead by now. It had concerned Roman Arnault and his uncanny ability to survive by remaining relevant. She was lucky to have made it this far on the goodwill of the farmers, but she needed something more. And on the other side of Salazar's threat, she perceived an opportunity, the ability to survive and, perhaps, thrive by remaining relevant. If only she had something he needed. And that was when she noticed it. She'd seen it many times, but she didn't recognize it at first. It was hunger. And the way Salazar pinched the handle of his mug, and the way his lips remained slightly parted, he wanted, very badly, to know what had happened in Recoleta. And then something else occurred to her for the first time. She could use that hunger. 
And uh, that, that takes place from the beginning of Cities and Thrones when two of the main characters, Jane and Frederick, are on the run after fleeing their hometown. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about Cities and Thrones yet, how would you describe your new novel? So it takes place immediately after The Buried Life, uh, which was my first. And a uh, little bit of a spoiler here, but The Buried Life ends with a revolution. And Cities and Thrones follows the consequences of that revolution. Uh, the events in Recoleta, which is the setting for The Buried Life, set off this domino effect. Locals have to cope with these sudden changes in their own government. Uh, the balance of power shifts in the surrounding cities. And all the characters are just trying to stay on their toes while their world just changes around them. Great. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing The Buried Life and then Cities and Thrones? Mm-hmm. So I actually, I'd, uh, I'd always, I wanted to write something novel length for a while. And I actually got the idea for The Buried Life when I was on a study abroad trip to Argentina. Um, there's this really lovely district there called Recoleta, and they have a famous cemetery there, uh, which I guess if you've been to New Orleans, it's kind of like that with all these above ground mausoleums, except they're, you know, much closer together. And it, it just, it almost looks like this strange little town. Um, and so as I had some downtime, uh, on my trip, I, I started thinking more and more about this idea and, you know, the kinds of characters that would live there and, uh, you know, the trouble they would get into. And I just, I had this fascination, you know, with these images of these, you know, misty, gaslit streets, um, you know, and, and secrets and, you know, how characters, in a, you know, when they live in this world that's just built to hide certain things, how they, how they end up unearthing these things. Um, and I was, I was kind of inspired by things like, uh, Mark Frost's The List of Seven by Phantom of the Opera, you know, which are all about these characters just getting in over their heads. And, you know, yet they're very atmospheric and flavorful. Um, and so The Buried Life was all about these characters who who are following these murders around them um, that take place in these these upper circles. Um, and then learning something about uh, the, the events that led to the founding of their city uh, and sort of what's behind all of that. Great. Well, I know that some of the reviews of The Buried Life, your first novel, mentioned uh, the steampunkish setting of the novel, and they also mentioned the, the mystery plot. Uh, were you thinking about categories such as steampunk when you sat down to write, or is that something that you thought about later in terms of marketing the, the book? You know, it was only something that came up later, and that actually made it very hard to try to um, pitch this book to agents and editors at first, because, you know, even... I'd say steampunk is a pretty good label for it, but it's it's not even really that steampunk mm -hmm. in, you know, the great spectrum of steampunk. Sure. You know, the technology definitely takes a back seat. Um, it's not really an alternate history. It's It actually takes place in the far future in sort of a, a, a setting where technology has regressed. Um, and so, so is society as a whole. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, it's definitely a mystery, but I, I think that just turned out for me to be the best way for these characters to explore the world around them. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really sit down thinking I'm going to write a mystery today. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I think especially when you talk about something that's speculative fiction, which The Buried Life definitely is, there's a tendency to say, well, if it has science fiction elements in it, it's science fiction, even if it's a mystery. If it has fantasy elements in it, it's a fantasy, you know, even if it's a mystery or a thriller. Um, and so figuring out kind of how to describe that book well and how to, you know, how to find the right audience for it was a real challenge for me at first. And one reason I felt very lucky to end up with Angry Robot 
which really specializes in this sort of between genre fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, what has your writing journey been? You mentioned earlier that you had always wanted to write a novel-length piece of fiction. Had you written short stories uh, before The Buried Life? And, and when did you first become interested in writing fiction? I hadn't written a lot very seriously before The Buried Life. Uh, I think like a lot of people, I'd sort of, you know, dabbled and played around with ideas. But nothing had really stuck and nothing had really, you know, had really felt like the real thing just yet. Um, you know, probably like a lot of writers, I, I grew up reading a lot. Um, my mom and dad are both avid readers. And, you know, just it was it was always sort of the household norm that, you know, each of them always has a book on their nightstand. And, you know, that's what I grew up doing as well. And, you know, I, I loved those worlds that other authors created for me. I loved their characters. Um, you know, and I realized when I was younger that I, you know, I was reasonably good at writing. I enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, what I created tended to work. And so uh, I guess just over time, I thought, well, you know, gee, maybe I could write a novel too, since that's really my, my favorite form of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, so I started The Buried Life in college, since I, I mentioned to you, I got the idea on a study abroad trip. Um, I spent some time, you know, that summer outlining, and then I probably wrote the first draft in about a year. Uh, and it was definitely not ready for publication. <laughs> and I was not really ready to realize that. Um, and so over the next several years, I would kind of go through this iterative process of, you know, pulling this manuscript back out of my drawer, looking at it, editing it, revising it, sending out a few queries, and then deciding, you know what, I still don't think it's there yet. Um, and the hardest thing about being a new writer was realizing, you know, like, how do you know when it's there? You know, how do you know when it's really ready? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can you can only write up to your skills at that point. And so that's, that's kind of the natural constraint you have to operate under. Um, and it was, I, I want to say the whole process probably took about eight years, but it wasn't, it wasn't a full time thing, obviously it was, but you know, that, that whole time kind of knowing that I wanted to write and knowing that I had a manuscript that I needed to fix, uh, definitely informed my reading and it made me a lot more attentive about, um, you know, what to look for and what to do differently and, you know, what I appreciated about the authors I loved. Uh, and so it, it just turned out to be very fortunate that, um, Worldcon a few years ago was held in San Antonio, which is not far from Houston where I was living at the time. Uh, and so that was my first, first Worldcon to attend. And there I met, uh, Lee Harris and Mike Underwood of Angry Robot, um, pitched them the novel, had no idea what would happen with it. And I'd actually started working on other things at that point, just cause I thought, you know, well, maybe this one isn't it. We'll see. Um, yeah. And uh, within the same span of a few months, I, uh, got my contract for the buried life. I sold my first short story to beneath ceaseless skies and I got a job writing for video games at obsidian entertainment, which is where I work now. Uh, so it was a, a very f- that was my journey to publication. <laughs> um, and why did you know that it wasn't publishable? You know, I think it was one of those things that I, I didn't always realize it at the time. Um, it was, it was sort of a situation where, you know, like the, the first couple of drafts I had, I'd realized, well, I'm not very good at dialogue just yet. Like this doesn't sound interesting. This doesn't sound like the way people talk. And I don't know how to make it better yet. So I'm just going to pay attention to other people's dialogue and try to pay attention to the way people actually talk and come back to this in a few months and see if I can make it better. Got it. And then I'd come back to it and I'd make those improvements and I'd say, okay, well, that wasn't so bad. 
And then I'd say, oh, but here's another problem I didn't notice I had, which is that I'm way too descriptive with some of this stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I think the trick is, is it's, it was hard to really, to really know when it was there. Um, and I think if you're an analytical person like I am, you know, you also start to start to obsess and start to, you know, sometimes think, well, it's, it's never really going to be there because it's, you know, there are always improvements I could make. Um, I, you know, I, I think that's, that process is probably a little bit different for everybody. But um, for me, I think it was it was helpful to get a lot of feedback from um, beta readers and critique groups that I really trusted um, because I, I think it's always helpful to have someone else look at your work with fresh eyes. And uh, I think they can oftentimes be more honest about it than you can. Great. Well, given your success to date with your novels, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening? Um, definitely keep reading and keep writing. You know, one, one experience I definitely had was that sort of each step of the process seemed really, really, really daunting until I sort of got about 75% of the way through it. And then I think, you know what, that's not so bad. <laughs> like at first, just writing a first draft, I thought, you know, how do you get 90,000 words? Like, where do they come from? I don't even understand how you do that. And then I got through my first draft and I thought, oh, okay, well, yeah, that, that's done. You know, and then, then the idea of editing and revising and saying, yeah, but now go back through those 90,000 words and change a lot of them. <laughs> that seemed really daunting. But I, I think you have to trust that, you know, your skills will grow, will grow with your ambitions if you keep working at it. Um, and it, you know, I think that success you dream of doesn't always happen quite as soon as you think it will. Um, but it's, you know, you do this because you enjoy it too. And so, you know, work on things you're passionate about. Don't work on something, you know, nobody can predict the future. Nobody has the crystal ball. Um, nobody can say this is the book that's going to, this is an idea that'll sell a million copies. So you should be writing that. Like, you know, work on the things you're passionate about. Find a community of writers um, that you can work with because, you know, one of the things I noticed about critique groups was besides getting regular feedback, it was immensely helpful to me just to know that I had to write for someone, you know, that someone, someone expected to see, you know, 5,000 or 10,000 words at the end of the week or the end of the month. And so I needed to produce those. Um, and when you're, when you're starting out as a writer, I think one of the most discouraging thoughts is I'm putting all this time and work into it, but is anyone ever going to see what I'm working on? Um, and I think that's actually, the, the biggest function a critique group can perform for a new writer is providing that audience. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, are there books and authors that you've read in the last year or two that impressed you and that you would recommend? I absolutely love uh, Max Gladstone. I've read Three Parts Dead and Two Serpents Rise. Um, my husband is a lawyer, and I never thought that I would find law so fascinating as it is in Max Gladstone's books, where it's it's the craft, which is sort of this uh, the practice of magic through you know big law firms, and it's sort of organized like you know contracts and these you know very legalistic processes. It's fascinating, and his world building is it's both really lavish and gorgeous and just jaw dropping, but it's also very detailed. And it, it has, it has that, um, that level of detail and that level of analysis that you really like to see. Um, if, again, if you're detail oriented, like I generally am. <laughs> um, I also, I love Neil Stevenson. I'm just getting to the end of seven eaves right now. Uh, I've read most of his stuff and I, I also really love the way he blends 
um, really good world building with really interesting stories. And I, I come away feeling like I've learned something without even really realizing it. Um, yeah, lots of good books, but I, I guess those are the two that come to mind at the moment, but there's a lot great. of great stuff out there right now. Great. Well, if someone is interested in learning more about you and your novels, The Buried Life and Cities and Thrones, where could they find you online? I'm on Twitter at Carrie underscore Patel. That's C-A-R-R-I-E underscore P-A-T-E-L. Um, and I do have a blog and a website called electronicinkblog.com. Uh, so those are probably the best two places to find me for now. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Carrie Patel, author of the novels, The Buried Life and Cities and Thrones. So go grab a copy today. And Carrie, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.